0: Roll call.
1: Okay, let's have the roll call. Um, so, um, Vice Chair Jones
0: uh, present.
1: Uh, board member uh, Borthwick present. And board member Saxby present. And then uh, Chair uh, Sanchez and um, board member Hernandez have excused absences.
0: Yeah, And so I'll be taking over um, for uh, for. Um, that um, Mr. Sanchez. Um, and so uh, the next agenda item is the minutes. Um, did you want to talk about the new format first or? Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: So um, if you take a look at your minutes, you'll notice that there's a, a different format. Um, staff is moving to a more of a streamlined format with um, action minutes for the board. And um, this has already been implemented um, with our other boards, uh, the planning board and the transportation commission. Uh, and really the reason b- is being that um, we no longer have these uh, recordings of these uh, meetings on tapes in our Is They're now posted digitally online on the website, and they're easily accessible by, uh, by the public. Um, and then it also allows us to have a more manageable workload for our staff. We have one staff member who does all the minutes for all three boards, and um, she also has a lot of other things that she does too, so it definitely helps with that too as well. Um, and so uh, the new format it it uh, complies with the sunshine ordinance and all of the public hearing requirements of the city. So um, that's why we're moving to this format.
3: I have a question. Yeah. So um, you know, I noticed the format change as well, um, and it, what occurred to me was that there was no no record keeping of any of the discussion that we had. So. Um, how does that information that this board, the discussion of this board, how does it get transmitted to other boards? For instance, um, like things that we talked about, um, the other board members for like the planning board, the city council, or whatever, would have to go and watch the HAB meeting in order to know what was said, and what was discussed. Because it seems to me you're you're leaving a big gap of information where somebody really has to seek it out instead of. Making it readily available to them
1: right yeah if, if if we were to transmit board comments to another board, then it would be staff would need to have to put together um, some kind of communication for that. yeah, um,
3: so it seems like that that's potentially a problem with this uh, format
1: yeah, I, I guess it would be um more work for staff if, if we I, I agree it's a lot of
3: work and, yeah. and and just in reviewing the notes for me. Thinking back, what happened November third or whenever it was, like five months ago, um, it's hard to recall detail. But my my point still is that um, I'm concerned that there's not a good there's not a good method for the boards to be sharing information other than just through staff and what manages to get documented.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that.
0: I think just to. Add on to the conversation. So let's say, like for instance, um, one of the agenda items is to discuss um, the public workshop to review comments on the um, objective design review standards. And it was the planning um, board that wanted uh, our our opinions on this. So we're going to have this discussion. So couldn't they foresee, like, couldn't they see the agenda and then know to? Review this tape and kind of fast forward to the discussion.
1: Um, Yeah, that definitely um, could be a way for them to do it. I mean, if you if you do um, try to use the uh, video archives on the website, it's it's a lot like YouTube. You can click and jump directly to the section that you want to go to, Um, so you don't have to like kind of you know wait and go through the entire meeting. It's it's very uh, intuitive like that. So. so I would say that it is pretty easy to get to the section that you do want to watch, if, if, um, if you want to do it that way.
3: And if, if, this, if this board feels like they want their comments to be um, heard by, say, the planning board, would it be appropriate for us to submit written comments? Um, yes. And instead of relying on the, the meeting uh, video? Right. To transfer information,
1: yeah, we could definitely do that if you want us staff to um, compile written comments or uh, or if you want to submit separately submit on, on your own, yeah. yeah we can do it that way too as well
3: because I know in in march you you sent us an email saying if we wanted to provide comments prior to the the planning board meeting that you would pass them along mm-hmm. and um, I guess the meeting was canceled uh, or postponed
1: um, it was moved yeah it's moved to um this coming Monday, okay. and so we did include um, comments that we received um, from you um, as part of that exhibit, so it's, it, it's, it's part of that packet.
3: Okay, yeah. and then what, what would be the, the latest possible date to submit additional comments
1: for that um, meeting? Um, all the way up to the meeting. Yeah.
3: Same, same day? hmm
1: yeah, okay. we'll, it, we'll just end up having to forward it directly to the, to the Board, the Planning Board. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: thank you.
0: Um, any other questions about the new format?
4: I do have one question for, so when those minutes go, the new format for the minutes go online, is there a link to the video? So if someone is looking at that, they can just click to that exact video?
1: Yeah, on the, um, on the Legistar website um, for the, for the meeting. Yeah, there's a link.
4: Okay, thank
1: you.
4: Mm -hmm. And on, just to
0: add on that same link, you could um, click on the agenda for that meeting as well. So you can kind of skim, you know, it's, it's, hard to recall sometimes if you're like looking back and wanting to reference, you know, months ago. So it's just nice to be able to kind of go through the agendas first and kind of like, um, yeah, narrow down what you need and then get to the video. I guess that's one way to do it. I mean, some people prefer reading the minutes, and I understand that as well. So I'm just putting that out there. but.
1: Yeah, that's how how I do it too when I re listen to board meetings. I grab the agenda and then I go, okay, this is item 7B, and then I jump to to that section there.
0: Any other questions? Nope. Okay, so um, would anyone like um, to um, to have a motion to approve this new format of the minutes?
4: Um, I'll make a motion to accept the new format.
3: Okay. Is is that what we're doing? Accepting the format, or
4: um,
1: you're approving the minutes.
4: Oh, we're approving right. the minutes. Yeah. I oh, we're approving make a the mo- minutes. Okay. So
0: is this so the minutes the new format is just actually going to happen? Like that's not something we're voting on.
4: Right. I, <laughs> okay. <yeah.
0: laughs> Got it. So okay, so that's can I understood. clarify one more thing? Yes.
3: So absolutely. the the minutes are effectively the recording of the meeting on November third. the video of that. It's not edited, it's just the whole meeting.
1: I would say that's like the, the digital video recording of it, but the minutes are what we're uh, approving tonight on the um, on the form. but' it's, it's, the format's going to be like action minutes where it tells you what the board decided
3: I, you know because I thought it was I thought it was odd that you know like you know Chris Buckley's comments were included on the meeting minutes, but none of the HAB board members' comments were included
1: yeah um, that's that's the the sunshine ordinance requires that we um, summarize the public's um, comments so that's, that's why it's, it's <laughs> okay. kind of a streamlined version right where the okay. board is action minutes and then the public will we'll, we'll summarize that so
3: but it's part of the it's part of the, the record that's being kept by the city all of our comments mm-hmm. yeah. okay you just have to seek them out right
1: okay. for the, vid- for the video yes
3: I'M but NOT EXACTLY then, COMFORTABLE WITH THIS, BUT I UNDERSTAND fair. WHY YOU'RE DOING IT.
0: FAIR. AND, and SO WE'RE, so, I'M SORRY, THERE'S A LOT OF QUESTIONS HERE, BUT um, SO WHAT WE'RE VOTING ON TONIGHT um, is, IS A MOTION TO APPROVE THE ACTUAL MINUTES FROM THIS NOVEMBER 3rd MEETING, right. WHICH IS DOCUMENTED WITHIN A VIDEO. A
1: digital video of we also have a video um, video of the me- of the meeting too as well but is, um, is,
3: is the link to the video as part of the minutes
1: um, it's it's in the agenda for that meeting yes the video is, is linked there
3: yeah I, I, I sort of feel like I need to go back and look at the whole thing again ne- knowing that this format change is taking place um, could, we, I-
0: could we um, uh, maybe skip the, the vote for it um whether we approve uh the minutes of november 3rd until the next meeting or
1: um sh- well, uh, one second I-, I think our um our planning director is online and he wants to um word okay. sure yeah.
5: uh good evening andrew thomas planning building and transportation director i just can you hear me okay
0: yes yes hi okay
5: great i just wanted to i just wanted to try to clarify um what's going on with the minutes um the city is required under the Sun- sunshine ordinance and the brown act to maintain written minutes of each minute of each meeting um, the sunshine ordinance and the brown act also establish the minimum requirements for action minutes the minutes serve under state law as a record of actions so w- what you have in your packet tonight is a um, action minutes which record the actions of the of the historic advisory board um, from the prior meeting the sunshine ordinance the city's sunshine ordinance say that those action minutes should also include a description of each public the name of each public speaker and what they said in brief so that's what we are providing in our written minutes which are a permanent record of the meetings that you've held that's what the minutes serve the tape which is also preserved and the video is supplements those those action minutes so if somebody wanted to go back and and try to you know get a better understanding of well i see that the historic advisory board voted three two with these you know one you know this with two people voting no and three voting yes and i can see from the action minutes who they were i'm wondering what their logic was why did they vote no they can go to the tape They can listen to it, and as as you pointed out, I think Chair or maybe it was um, uh, um, staff member um, Dong, on the city website, you go to the, if you're interested in what happened at a past meeting of any board or commission, you go to the city's website, you find the board or commission that you're looking for, Historic Advisory Board, you find the date that you're interested in, the last meeting, last November, you click on that, you get there's the agenda so you can see what was on the agenda there are the action minutes which you can then see what they did on that agenda and there's a link to the tape if you want to listen to the comments of the board meetings and you want to hear the debate and as henry was saying when you go to the tape you it's a very simple thing to just click right ahead to the item that you're interested in So you don't have to sit through the whole tape. You just go, oh, I'm really interested in item 7B. So you click, and it jumps you to item 7B. um, And then you can listen to that. If you want to fast forward through the staff presentation, you can fast forward to it to get to the board members' discussion. So um, that's how it's intended to work. So what you're being asked tonight is to review the action minutes and determine whether they're accurate or not. So
0: that was my thank you. Oh, thank you. Mr. Thomas, um, my next question, though, is because it's like a video, is there something that we actually have to approve? Or, like, normally we review the minutes and we state different inaccuracies or certain things we'd like to edit, but it's, like, going to be a video the whole time, no?
5: No, you're not, you're not approving the video. You're approving the written minutes which are in your packet, okay. which documented the actual actions that you took. Okay. So if those are not accurate, if, if we produce a written minutes in your packet that say, oh, the, the board voted three to two on this, with these two people voting no, and you look at that the next meeting and say, wait a second, no, that's not right. That would, that would be a unanimous vote, then you should not approve those minutes, and we should correct them for you. I
0: see. Okay. That makes sense. Okay.
3: Were, were there any actions taken at the November 3rd meeting?
0: It was pretty scant. Like it what? Just,
3: it's 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 a it's odd for me, uh, just because we sit here and discuss things for hours and none of it gets uh, recorded, other than if somebody really wants to dig in.
1: Yeah, the actions are highlighted in in black. I don't have a copy oh, of sorry. it. So. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so yeah, there was an action for the minutes um, for the previous meeting. For the previous meeting, yes, and then. Uh, there was an action for um, to continue the um, the meeting to past ten o'clock. Okay, so, yeah, <laughs> which we ones. did. Okay.
0: Okay. Sorry. Uh, apologies. I it was just it's a new format. So when I saw the minutes, there was it was just odd for me. So, but Likewise. if that's if that's the case, and thank you for summarizing that. Um, I have no uh, changes to make to the minutes. Um, Tom, how do you feel?
3: So I'll I'll go ahead and make them. I mean, I've expressed how I feel about it, but I'll make a motion to uh, approve the minutes as they are presented to us.
4: Okay. And I second that motion. Okay. So.
1: Do you take a roll call vote or? Okay. Um, Let's see. Board member um, Jones?
4: Uh,
0: Aye.
1: Uh, Borthwick? Aye. Saxby? Okay, it's a three oh.
0: All right, thank you. Um, so the next item, um, agenda changes and discussions, are there any?
1: Um, no, we don't have any agenda changes. There.
0: Okay, moving right along. Um, are there any oral communications um, from the public that have nothing to do with the agenda today?
6: Yeah, we have one
2: speaker, uh, Chris Buckley. All right. Christopher Buckley Alameda resident um, one just comment that it's kind of hard to hear some of you um, sitting in the audience It's interesting director Thomas came through loud and clear. Um, but um, yeah, Mr. Dong is I'm barely hearing but I think you have a microphone problem. Oh, and I, I can I can change my uh, direction. Okay. And um, I was able to hear board member Saxby really good. So Maybe the sound system needs some adjusting. Thank okay. you.
3: Just in response to that comment, I'm having trouble hearing. Uh, Jones. Chair, Vice Chair Jones. Um, the screen blocks the sound, and I'm not hearing her through the PA system. Okay. I'll
0: um, try to speak louder. Is this <laughs> better?
1: Yeah, we're supposed no. to be like three three inches from three in- the I'm mic. I'm pretty close to
0: the mic. But
1: I, I always want to face you guys to yeah. try to talk and then, yeah. yeah. yeah cool. Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> Maybe
0: okay. Well, I'll do my best. Hopefully this will be better. I'll try to, try to enunciate. It does. It sounds good. All right. Like <laughs> All right. Any other oral communications? No, that's it. Okay. Uh, written communications.
1: Um, no, no other uh, written communications.
0: Okay, so now we are on to our regular agenda items. The first agenda item would be uh, 7A. This is the uh, amending historical advisory board rules and procedures. Um,
1: uh,
0: should I just read the whole the oh, summary? No, um, or?
1: I, I can uh, introduce the item. Yeah,
0: Okay, that's yeah, fine. Sure.
1: Um, all right, uh, good evening, um, Chair Jones, um, members of the board. HENRY DONG WITH THE uh, PLANNING BUILDING AND TRANSPORTATION DEPARTMENT. Um, FOR THIS ITEM, I'M JUST GOING TO GIVE A a QUICK SUMMARY. Um, AS PART OF THE uh, SHIFT OF THE CITY TO GO BACK INTO IN PERSON MEETINGS WITH THE HYBRID FORMAT, THE CITY CLERK IS um, REQUESTING THAT ALL BOARDS AND COMMISSIONS MOVE TO A MORE STANDARDIZED AGENDA FORMAT. AND SO THE CLERK IS uh, PROPOSING THIS REVISED AGENDA LINEUP THAT YOU SEE ON YOUR SCREEN um, TONIGHT um, AND INCLUDED IN YOUR STAFF REPORT. Um, IN ADDITION, STAFF IS ALSO SUGGESTING um, SOME MINOR REVISIONS THAT THE PLANNING BOARD MADE TO THEIR BYLAWS TO KIND OF BRING um, SOME OF THE uh, um, REQUIREMENTS TO um, CURRENT PRACTICES, I WOULD SAY. Um, SO THE BYLAWS um, are CAN BE REVISED uh, AS YOU GUYS PLEASE um, AS LONG AS THEY MEET uh, STATE LAW um, AND THE uh, BROWN ACT AND THE SUNSHINE ORDINANCE. SO um, STAFF IS RECOMMENDING THAT YOU APPROVE. To draft decision.
0: I THINK uh, BOARD MEMBER SAXBY DOESN'T HAVE IT ON HIS SCREEN. I
3: DON'T HAVE ANY VIDEO.
1: IT'S, it's NOT SHOWING UP.
3: I HAD VIDEO WHEN uh, DIRECTOR THOMAS WAS SPEAKING TO US, BUT I DON'T HAVE IT NOW.
6: Um,
1: OKAY.
6: CITY CLERK STAFF IS WORKING ON IT RIGHT NOW. OKAY.
1: Yeah. Um, OH, WE HAVE IT ON THE it's a little hard to read. <laughs>
3: uh, switch places out. Sit out there.
0: Well, while while we're waiting for that, maybe just highlight the the big differences. Okay. Um,
1: sure. So um, the bi- the major differences uh, really are that um, oral communications and written communications are going to be uh, combined to the non-agenda public comment section. Um, and then agenda changes and discussions um, will be removed from the, um, from the agenda. Um, and then basically, I think everything else is pretty much the same. Yeah, we have staff community change, it's still the same. And then regular Jeanette. So, yeah, it's a little bit more simplified, but it's gonna be more consistent with the other boards, and this is what the, the clerk is asking for, too.
0: I can open it up to questions from the board. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Board member Saxby? Well, in
3: addition to the format change, they were looking through the ordinance, there were some other text changes. And um, are, are we going to discuss those, or are they, um, are they up for discussion?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, they were changes to kind of bring um, the board bylaws into, uh, up to date to current practices. Okay. So, yeah.
3: Well, one of the comments I wanted to, I, I personally don't have a, an issue with the new agenda request. Um, but one of the things I, th- I saw that I thought would help improve our board was under item B, membership. And it talks about, you know, the registered architect and a licensed contractor as being qualifications for the board and and, then two at-large members. And then it has a, a third category where it says registered architect or a builder or a landscape architect. And I don't remember all the details of it. But I thought that particular item, it would be nice to include Uh, the qualifications of someone with a background in local history or California history or architectural history. I mean, we are the Historical Advisory Board, and yet we don't have any, um, you know, people necessarily that have those qualifications. Um, So I'd like to see that added if possible. Um, And there's always the opportunity for the council, if they can't find anybody that meets those qualifications, to appoint someone else. So it's just kind of making it known that that's a desired um,
0: qualification. qualification
3: for the board, and I, you know, I'm putting it out there to my other fellow board members uh, if if they want to comment on that that idea.
0: Are you saying that the fifth um, spot would be for that category, or you're just adding?
3: I'm adding it to more. the the qualifications for the um, sort of the catch-all, which was the architect, right. landscape architect, builder. I mean, it, there, was, there was already a registered architect and a licensed contractor, but this, this third one that was not the at-large community mm-hmm. member, that third one I think could be more effectively targeted to have someone with some historical
0: background. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea.
4: I totally agree. I think it could be a historian or an architectural historian.
1: Um, which uh, would would that be under C or? it was
3: under it was under item B membership uh-huh. and then there were there were five different uh, categories I believe I don't again I don't have a copy of these
4: I have it up in front of me so it's under B and then one appointment and then it's b one B b1b says one registered landscape architect architect or building designer so I think what I'm hearing is that that is kind of a replicating what's already there with a little the bit redundant, yeah. building our ar- contractor and the architect so that item could potentially include or or just be an architectural historian or historian. Does that kind of get Yeah, I it? think
3: that my my concept was not to exclude any of what was previously included but just to add, add these mm-hmm. this category Expanded. to acknowledge you know what this board effectively is about.
1: So we'll add historian and architectural historian. I don't know if
3: we're going to need to take a vote on it or if it's it's just a
1: suggestion. Yeah, I mean, you can make that part of your your motion to approve.
0: Okay. Okay. I would, well, I'll open it up to the rest of the board. Um, Is there any, well, before we go there, is there any other uh, questions or discussions about uh, the new uh, rules and procedures?
3: Uh, I mean, the only other comment, I. Would have is, I, I know there's reasons for posting the agenda item uh, seven days before the meeting, but for instance, with the agenda item, I think that's written in the, in the ordinance. Right. Um, yeah, but with like the, the annual reports, you know, there's 160 some pages of report, and it's difficult to get through something like that in seven days if you're a working person and can't devote a lot of time to it. So um, I don't know if it's just a formality of of, if there's something like that coming up to issue it uh, two weeks ahead or three weeks ahead. That would be helpful. I don't think we need to change the ordinance. I'm just saying it would be helpful for me to be able to digest these issues a little bit more if I had more time.
1: Um, Sorry, uh, uh, our uh, director, um, Andrew Thomas, uh, um, wants to address the board. Is it okay? Okay.
5: Thank you, board. Absolutely. On that last point, uh, Commissioner Saxby, I think as staff, we should be thinking that way. Um, Large documents, uh, especially if they're ready, there's no reason for us not to transmit them ahead of the rest of the um, packet, Um, particularly in like the general plan annual report. I mean, it was it was ready. We could have done that. I think it's it's just incumbent upon staff to be thinking along those lines when we have a big document like that to give you as much time as possible, even if the rest of the packet's not ready. Um, just real quickly, uh, the composition of the historic advisory board uh, that you read off. I thought your idea about the historian is a was a is an excellent idea, but the actual composition is established in the municipal code. Um, so to do it officially as you had suggested would require amending the municipal code, which is not a big deal. Um, I think we could we could do that. It wouldn't be a ton of work. it takes you have to make a recommendation to the city council then we have to have two readings of the city council. The other thing in the short term and this could be in the bylaws is that the mayor makes appointments which the council has to ratify and you know, the at-large, that fifth category in the Municipal Code, you read it. It's like somebody interested in, let's say, community design or something. Um, I think, you know, just sort of making it clear to the mayor in your bylaws or in other places, like, hey, we're also interested in people who have expertise in history. I mean, just as a short gap measure, until such time that the Municipal Code is amended, if that's something you wish to recommend oh and then lastly just um in terms of process on the minutes this happens with the planning board a lot where the planning board is having a discussion and it's a discussion and that needs to be transmitted forward to the city council um and that's uh, maybe it doesn't i I don't attend the stark advisory board meetings um very often but that that is something that i think when you're having that kind of conversation and it's you know that this discussion is going to move forward to the city council and you're acting in an advisory way it's i think it's 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 absolutely appropriate for the the board to be clear with staff when you write your staff report telling the city council what we talked about you know we want to make sure the following points are emphasized in your staff report this is what we think are the salient issues that we want to make sure the City Council understands about how we discussed this and what we thought were important Um, and we this this happens a lot at the Planning Board so um, you should not you should not um, you know refrain from making that clear when you're in that situation and you know your your discussion is going to be moved forward to the City Council and staff can make sure it's articulated correctly in the staff report
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, All right, so are we ready to, um, wait, so do we need to make a motion on this one? We
1: actually, we have a public speaker. We need a public comment.
0: Oh, right, okay. So are there any public comments about?
2: Yeah, we have uh, one uh, speaker, Christopher Buckley. Christopher Buckley, Alameda resident. I agree with um, uh, Mr. Saxby's comments Uh, would also note that uh, there is a kind of a footnote on the board composition that all board members must have a demonstrated interest in Alameda history and uh, other related subjects, which may to some degree, you know, cover that as well. Um, The main comment on the order of the agenda, I recommend that the opportunity for oral communications or if you prefer non agenda public comments. Remain twice. And the reason for that recommendation is that sometimes during board discussion, uh, you know, inaccuracies may come in, factual inaccuracies. And that if the members of the public, you know, have information that would address those, or sometimes questions come up. Board members have questions. Sometimes members of the public are able to answer those questions. So the second opportunity for oral, pardon me, uh, non agenda public comment. Um, can be used to communicate that. I expressed a similar idea to the planning board when they were considering their rules changes and I believe they accepted that and I believe the planning board uh, format is keeping you know two opportunities for public comment or I need to correct myself non agenda public comment and the city council is retaining that format. SO, NEITHER THE PLANNING BOARD NOR THE HAB WOULD BE OUTLIERS IF THEY RETAIN THOSE TWO OPPORTUNITIES FOR NON-AGENDA PUBLIC COMMENT. THANK YOU.
0: ANY OTHER COMMENTS? WELL, I
3: I WOULD ASK THE QUESTION, I I THINK WHEN IT SAYS NON-AGENDA PUBLIC COMMENT, ISN'T THAT IMPLYING THAT WE'RE NOT SUPPOSED TO BE TALKING ABOUT AGENDA ITEMS? <laughs> so if, a, if, the, if the community, people speaking to the board want to talk about something that was said as one of the agenda items, they really shouldn't be using that particular item because it's on the agenda. Is that Am I m- misinterpreting that?
2: Uh, no, because, well, I guess there's a fine line. There may be, as part of an agenda item discussion, statements made or questions asked STATEMENTS MADE that are, either inac- THAT ARE INACCURATE OR QUESTIONS ASKED WHERE THERE'S NOT A CLEAR ANSWER AND MAYBE STAFF OR SOMEONE NEEDS TO COME BACK TO THE BOARD, ARGUABLY, THOSE KINDS OF DISCUSSIONS ARE NOT DIRECTLY PERTAINED TO THE AGENDA ITEM ITSELF, SO, YOU KNOW, I'M NOT, I'LL HAVE TO ADMIT, I'VE, I've MADE THOSE Sometimes answer those questions in the past in the second opportunity, and nobody has cut me off. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, I would I would like to think that if it's a matter of general information, factual information, that um, a member of the public providing that information, um, it, w- it would not be inappropriate. It's it does pertain directly to the agenda item.
0: Or could it be um, perhaps like a call to like a another meeting or a next step situation? Where it's not pertaining to the agenda item, but something that came like a secondary uh, line of thinking that might pop up.
1: It would be um, kind of similar to the current um, advisory board agenda where you have oral communications at the beginning and then you would have oral communications at the end. So it's just like another opportunity for somebody to speak.
0: Any other comments or thoughts?
3: Um, well, I, I, I agree with Mr. Buckley's point. I think it, it sometimes is good to have uh, the public able to come back and clarify things, points that were made um, in the discussions and, um, and not have it just be closed, you know, and that, so that just, it ends as soon as the, the board closes the meeting, closes the discussion.
0: Uh, I'm in agreement. Um, I also feel that sometimes we have multiple agenda items that are quite uh, robust with information. And there are some people that stay from the beginning and some people that come in the middle and stay towards the end of the meeting. So uh, I don't think it would be, uh, I think it would be a good idea to have uh, two. Uh, Opportunities for the public to speak. Um, Okay, so uh, we've heard some good uh, comments and uh, ideas. Uh, Would anyone like to make a motion to approve uh, these new uh, rules and procedures? Uh, I'll
3: I'll make a STAND at it. Okay. Um, I'd like to make a motion to approve the new uh, rules and procedures the Historical Advisory Board um, with the request of adding a second um, public comment, non-agenda comment uh, agenda item after the the main agenda items are closed. And um, also encourage uh, staff to look at the possibility of adding the qualifications of a historian or an architectural historian to um, the member criteria for the HAB. Is that yeah. said well enough?
4: I second that motion.
3: Okay.
4: All in favor?
3: I think we have to do oh. the roll call. The
0: oh, so, uh, okay, got it. So,
1: okay. um, so Chair Jones?
0: Uh, aye.
1: Yeah. Um, Board Member Borthwick? Aye. And Saxby? Aye. Aye. Motion passes. Okay.
0: All right. Um, now we are on to our next agenda item, 7B. Uh, let's see. This is for the. Um, oh, uh, I believe um, Mr. Andrew Thomas will uh, share the uh, 2022 um, annual report. Yeah.
5: Good evening. Um, chair members of the historic advisory board andrew thomas again um, we this is an information item for the historic advisory board um, we wanted to uh, make sure that you all received a copy of the annual report there's no need for action by the board tonight um, we have been you know we want we every year under state law the city of alameda is required to do an annual report on the status of its general plan It is required under state law to provide an annual report to the state of california and to the city council on progress made on its housing element and the status of its housing element the city council has also adopted a climate action and resiliency plan um, which has been in effect over the last five years and that requires an annual report and then our 20 i think it's 2017 transportation choices plan our Vision Zero plan and all of our transportation plans also require sort of annual reports. And the idea of all these annual reports is to assess what was achieved in the prior years, and 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 and, and consider what the priorities should be for the upcoming years in terms of implementing those plans and policies. We try to do these annual reports every year in the spring because in july, june and july is when the city council makes decisions about their about the city budget and the allocation of, of public resources so um it's not intended to necessarily influence budget decisions but rather inform them um, i uh as it was noted it's a and this is the first year where we decided it was time rather in past years we've always done independent reports they just independently never put put them all together Um, So we thought going forward, it would be a good idea to consolidate the plans um, and the annual reports, put them all into a single document so that the city council, all the advisory boards, as well as the the public is able to sort of see them all together, think about what the priorities were for the past year uh, on these three big issues, housing, climate change, and transportation, and, and what this at least the staff's perspective is on what the priorities should be going forward um with that i'll just make myself available to answer any questions you might have um and as i said there's no need for action here this is also an opportunity for the historic advisory board to weigh in on priorities and ideas for the upcoming year um, in terms of what the city should be focusing on
3: thank you
0: thank you Um, i'll open it up to questions
4: no
3: questions. i i I have a question uh, regarding the, the climate change issues. Mm. Very important. Um, so the city seems to be focusing on transportation, primarily. I think reducing uh, to reduce greenhouse gases, and then they're you know looking at you know more more electrified homes and buildings, and you know reducing the use of fuels and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't see was any any requirement or any thinking about embodied carbon in our construction process. And we're doing a lot of building now in Alameda. And I'm wondering if any thought has been given to uh, carbon accounting for these new projects. Because, you know, the construction industry is responsible for some 40% of greenhouse gases. And we could be doing something uh, in our new buildings to. To make sure that we're mitigating as much carbon in the process of building these new buildings as possible, and I didn't see any uh, discussion of that, and so I'm just curious if there's, if there are discussions of that, or if we're looking at, at that as a, as another way to help uh, reduce our carbon use.
5: Um. Very interesting question. Um, I think I think the short answer is no. We have not been having very much discussion about that, um, and uh, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about specifically what does that entail. I, I is this a, It would be. A, I mean, it's just it. Short answer is no. You're right. That hasn't been a focus. I think it's a very interesting concept, though, because as you said, there is a lot of building going on and a lot of building planned. If we are going to actually, you know, meet our regional housing needs, so um, what can we do? What I heard you say is, what, what can we be doing in new construction? Well, to I think I mean I should yes. let you speak. You, you you know more about this than I do. <laughs>
3: well, it's it's a it's a hot topic, and uh, it's not only new construction. I think there also could be. Um, I think f- as far as new construction goes, it's, it's an accounting for the carbon that's being used in the creation of our new buildings. And there's all sorts of, of programs now that architects are using as tools to make decisions about what materials are being used and assigning carbon loads to those materials and making decisions about building assemblies um, and construction methods that reduce the carbon. So trying to reduce the embodied carbon in these buildings as much as possible uh, so that we're starting off with a lower level of carbon and then obviously there's operational carbon which is all the, the carbon used to provide electricity and, and whatnot to these buildings. Um, so there's a, a carbon accounting process that could be done as part of the planning phase of buildings and making choices about materials essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, concrete's very carbon intensive. Steel is very carbon intensive. Um, those are two you know really bad polluters mm-hmm. and um, so Interesting and there are ways now. there are ways of reducing the carbon content of those materials and so it's something that designers can be looking at and can be uh, thinking about in the in design development phase of the project um, there's also adaptive reuse of existing buildings, which essentially mm-hmm. takes the, uh, the embodied carbon load away. You've, you've right. the buildings there, so you're not, you're not I'm, I'm sorry if I'm using terms that are not familiar to everybody, but embodied carbon is the, is the structure itself and what goes into building it. And the operational carbon is the, the carbon that's used to uh, operate the building. So that, that keeps growing over time, but the embodied carbon is a fixed amount that gets produced when the building is constructed. Mm-hmm. And so adaptive reuse solves a lot of that problem by sort of eliminating the embodied carbon and just, you're just dealing with operational carbon at that point. So I think those are two good things to, to look at and um, it's, it's just food for thought. I think that um, there's, there's new materials that are being produced that sequester carbon. Um, and designers uh-huh. can be using those. Um, you know, there, there's even, you know, it's like concrete blocks that you know have carbon sequestered into the material <laughs> itself. And there, there is all sorts of new technologies out there. And I think that uh, the design teams can be very clever about working with those if if they're given that task. So I. THOSE ARE MY TWO CENTS.
0: ANY OTHER QUESTIONS OR THOUGHTS, COMMENTS? ALL RIGHT. Um, WELL, uh, I THINK THAT'S THAT FOR US, FOR THAT AGENDA ITEM. Um,
1: THANK YOU VERY MUCH. THANK YOU. SHOULD WE DO A PUBLIC COMMENT?
0: Um, OH, I'M SORRY. I KEEP FORGETTING THE PUBLIC COMMENTS. YES. Yeah, let's I'm sorry open about that too because
1: to, I keep jumping in with comments. I know,
0: I'm so sorry. Let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, open it up to any public comments.
6: Uh, there are no public comments for this okay.
0: item. Yeah, I just uh, kind of creature of habit, and it's uh, it's just, there's just Mr. Buckley literally in, in our building right now. But um, yeah, apologies, and uh, let's keep moving along. Now we're at uh, agenda item 7C. Uh, I believe that the um, well it's for the it's a public workshop to review and comment on the city of Alameda's objective design review standards um, I believe this is something that um, other boards are discussing and so we from the historical advisory board are have you know will have this discussion and uh, I believe also that uh, David Sablon and Heather Coleman might present.
1: Um, Yes, uh, thank you, um, Chair uh, Jones. Henry Dong with the Planning Building Transportation Department. Um, Yeah, we, tonight we have um, David Zablon with us, a planner, um, and then uh, Heather Coleman, our um, planning consultant, is available um, remotely. Um, And so we'll be doing a presentation tonight. I'll just give a real quick um, uh, introduction. so the, the planning board, they did request staff to hold a study session to revisit the objective design review standards. Um, and they also requested that we um, get feedback from the HAB on the standards as well. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we, um, we weren't able to have the meeting last week, and so it was moved to, um, to Monday. And so we weren't able to get um, direction from the planning board on where they wanted to go. Um, but from staff's perspective, um, we feel like a lot of work has already gone into the standards um, by staff. They, we had a subcommittee of the planning board as well and then the planning board. Um, and it's been revised one time in 2021. Um, and we think we have a good foundation of standards that tries to you know, balance a lot of different factors, right? Um, and from working with the standards in practice, um, we've put together a list of tweaks that we think um, might help um, fill gaps in the standards that might need some refinement. And so staff is gonna uh, go through those examples tonight in, uh, in the presentation, and then we're hoping to get some feedback from they should be on that. And then also uh, gather comments, any comments that they should be has as well. Um, but one thing we want to keep in mind is just um, that We're trying to maintain a balance between the good design, right, uh, architectural variety, and then also um, trying to um, not create a lot of costs for these housing projects, so uh, something to keep in mind. And with that, I'll I'll hand it over to uh, David.
6: Uh, thank you, Henry, and thank you, members of the board. Uh, my name is David Sablon. I'm with the Planning, Building, and Transportation Department. Um, as stated tonight, uh, the board will be holding a study session to discuss the city's objective design review standards. Um, since it's been a while since the, the board has uh, discussed this topic, we would like to provide a small explanation of what objective standards are and how they, the city must use them. Um, specifically, several laws enacted by the state limit the city's review of housing projects against. Uh, objective standards, since the definition is is up on the screen, it's standards that involve no personal or subjective judgment by a public official and are uniformly verifiable by reference to an external and uniform benchmark or criterion available and knowable by both the development applicant and the public official prior to submittal. And so based on that, the city uh, adopted our first set of objective design review standards in uh, February uh, 2020. um, And then the the standards were revised to add neighborhood context uh, requirements a year later in February 2021. Uh, In December 2021, uh, the city then adopted objective design review standards for one and f- uh, two family uh, projects. This was uh, in response to uh, the state law SB 9, which uh, requires uh, objective design standards to be applied to new single family homes in, in R1 zones. Um, the starting point was looking at our existing design review manuals and guidelines. Um, The Guide to Residential Design, Citywide Design Review Manual, Webster Street Design Manual, and uh, Ranch House Guidelines. Um, And what we did was we we looked at those and identified existing objective design standards that we could then uh, start the basis of the the new uh, uh, documents on. And so, as Henry said, key to this process was striking a balance um, with these standards, recognizing that in order to encourage residential development uh the process needs to be streamlined standards should be specific uh not open to interpretation and simple enough that all parties understand the requirement while also recognizing that design is key to the character of the city and that new development should be compatible with the surrounding neighborhood and drafting standards that provide p- flexibility and options for how good design can be achieved um, so we wanted to take a a a moment to point out some of the differences between standards and guidelines um and you know what makes a standard objective—it's—it's um, it's measure, measurable, clear, easy to determine uh, compliance with. Um, you know, it's—it's it's a question: is—is is an element required to be present, such as window trim, or building's main entrance, uh, and then uh, other factors like where are these things required to be, such as you know, a building's main entrance shall be located on the street frontage. Um, are there required dimensions? Uh, And so basically these come down to a question of yes or no. Uh, Are these things, you know, are these requirements present in the application? Um, And to that point, uh, can architectural style be an objective style, uh, objective standard? Uh, The answer is yes, if those elements are clearly defined. Um, For instance, the city's guide to residential design provides uh, clear examples uh, of what elements are. Present in different architectural styles. This is uh, a sheet taken directly from the uh, guide to residential design, and we have this for, for different types of architectural styles. And so, um, you know, to say it's a Craftsman cottage, it would need to have these these elements into it. In it. Um, so, that brings us tonight's uh, study session. Since the adoption of the objective standards, uh, the city has approved uh, actually three multifamily projects already. Um, all three projects were not in the traditional design area, and so they, uh, we did not apply the neighborhood context. These, these were two projects over uh, Alameda Point and one along the northern waterfront. Um, after the last project's approval, the planning board wanted to revisit the standards to see where refinements could be made. Um, asking for both feedback from the Historical Advisory Board and stakeholders in the community as well. Um, in preparation, as Henry said, in preparation um, for the study session, staff has identified uh, several topics worth discussing and uh, Henry will actually uh, kind of talk through some of these.
1: Thank you, David. Um, so the, the first um, uh, item that we have here is um, in regards to uh, Standard 2B which talks about avoiding um, blank walls by incorporating one of several features, including windows, doors, artwork, or a trellis with with like a a live landscaping element to it. Um, But what we found from um, uh, the North Housing Project was that um, these uh, trellises are actually really hard to uh, maintain and keep alive, and so um, the developer um, it was explaining that you know most would probably forego doing something like this just because it ends up being um, unsightly and, and not a very good um, uh, element feature to the to the building, and so we're wondering if like um, should this be considered an option still, or should we add other options to um, to instead of instead of the trellis with with the um, landscaping? That's just one item. Um, Next item here is, um, so the standards, they allow for um, uh, exterior entrances to upper floor units, right, Um, and exterior breezeways, as long as it's not on the street-facing elevation, right? Can you speak up a little bit? Oh. Um, So the uh, standards allow for exterior entrances um, to upper floor units and exterior breezeways, as long as they're not on the street-facing elevation right. But the question here is what about the stairways that that access to these areas right. Um, um, I guess uh, uh, some examples that we've seen in affordable housing projects is that they have the stairs sandwiched between the building right but they're still visible. Um, but I guess partially enclosed you, you could say right and covered. So um, is this something that you know, we would be okay with? Or do you think that these stairways should have a door or some kind of screening, right? Because it's gonna be visible from the street. Um, I guess there's a lot of maybe cost implications in meeting certain codes, uh, reasons why they would want to do this. But um, but yeah, that's, a, that's one of the standards that we were gonna ask you about too. Um, let's see. THIS NEXT ONE IS um, A SITE PLAN OF THE uh, NORTH HOUSING PROJECT. Um, AND THE uh, QUESTION THAT CAME UP HERE IS THAT THE SENIOR HOUSING um, PORTION OF THE um, SITE, WHICH IS ON THE LOWER, um, lower um, RIGHT HAND SIDE, um, THE HOUSING AUTHORITY WANTED THE MAIN PRIMARY ENTRANCE uh, LOCATED ON THE PARKING LOT SIDE BECAUSE OF THE um, the senior clientele that they have right and so they prefer for safety reasons to have them dropped off um, in the parking lot and um, accessing the facility from there. But our standards require that a primary entrance be on the street facing elevation right on the main street side so that would be along the east um, elevation of that building. Um, But what they did was they did create um, a direct pathway. To the street to the west, right uh, to, which met the principle of, of, of the uh, standard, which is to provide direct access to the public realm directly to the primary entrance, but it didn't quite meet the objective standard, so we did require to have them install another entrance on the east side of the building um, and what that ended up doing was creating a situation where they have monitoring issues right because they're worried about um, senior clientele leaving the uh, facility, and then also ends up being um, kind of an entrance that's not really being used, right? Um, maybe even locked, right, to um, to prevent um, people from leaving. So, um, I guess the question would be, you know, for these types of projects, you know, should we allow um, allow for parking lot entrances or Is there like another alternative that we could do? Maybe like a a prominent landscaping entrance to the site instead of an entrance into the building, right? Um, Could that be an option as well?
6: Okay, Um, and so another uh, issue that came up was uh, the the issue of the equivalent facade treatment. Um, The standard says that same theme on all street facing facades in the first 10 feet of sides. and the theme includes primary materials and colors. Uh, the problem is, is the appearance of facades flanking drive aisles and alleys. Uh, here's an elevation of uh, that faces internally to, um, for recently approved development, where the theme of the primary materials and colors from the street side facing uh, facade have been carried over. So, it, it you know, in the yes or no question, yes, it meets it meets the theme. Um, so. Uh, so it meets, it, but it results in way less interest than the street-facing facades. Um, staff recommendation, um, or for point of discussion, is that theme should be expanded to include other elements other than just uh, primary materials and colors. Um, for a, a Equipment screening, the ground floor equipment shall be screened with landscaping or screening materials. Um, and so, the problem is that new development will be built with uh, electric equipment uh, and mechanical electric uh, utilities, such as uh, electric heat pump, um, which you see in the, the bottom picture, uh, which are difficult to fully screen um, since they're uh, located on this, uh, the side of the building. Uh, additionally, new developments will have uh, electrical vehicle chargers. Uh, staff recommends requiring that these types of equipment Related to the electrification of buildings, not be located on street facing elevations um, if it unable to be uh, fully screened. Um, another another issue, this is actually from the, the uh, one and two family uh, objective design review standards, is that uh, second story additions to bungalows must be set back from the first floor. Um, and so this setback only applies to, to bungalows, and, and more general massing standards uh, should probably. Uh, be considered so that we don't end up with uh, uh, you know out, out of out of proportion additions um, and then the, the last issue um, is is uh, the golden mean standard um, it's a standard where the height of the uh, when raising a new uh, a building the height of the first floor uh, shall be no more than um, .6, of sixty uh, percent of the height of the upper floor um, and uh, in these situations, if you know, since a lot of buildings uh, are, um, you know, nine to ten feet, uh, in order to raise the house, they won't meet the golden mean, and so uh, oftentimes we tell them to, to dig down, to to excavate, to get that ceiling height. Um, however, with uh, uh, sea level rise uh, here in the map. Um, at 36 inches of sea level rise here, the, the red parts of, of the city would then become to, um, you know, experience uh, ground, <laughs> groundwater uh, intrusion, um, and so staff recommends, uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at this issue uh, further. Um, we've also heard the call for including more illustrations, um, and so we're, um, you know, these are some examples from um, the city of San Jose. Uh, standards and, and San Leandro. Um, and so we, you know, staff will, will work with, uh, with uh, somebody to produce some graphics. And so we'd like some feedback on if there's any specific topics that the boards uh, would like to see. Um, So, the current task, uh, again, is to review uh, and comment on the standards and provide uh, feedback uh, for staff to provide to the planning board. And so, at the end of uh, this item, I believe staff will will kind of read back what we've heard from the uh, historical advisory board so that um, when we make this presentation on Monday, we can be on the same page as far as what's uh, being presented to to the planning board. Um, with that, um, you know myself, Henry, and, and uh, Heather Coleman are, are available for questions, and um, we do have one public speaker.
0: Okay, thank you, uh, Mr. Sablon. Uh, I'll open it up to the board for questions. Any questions for Mr. Sablon or Ms. Coleman or Henry or Mr. Dong?
3: I do, but. Does somebody else want to speak first?
0: There's a lot of items, so <laughs>
3: well, th- we're not commenting. We're going uh, to we're going to do it right but, this time, right? Right.
0: yeah. <laughs> but any any particular questions?
3: Yeah, Sorry. I have a my my question. One of my questions is um, understanding a little bit more about how the process works with the objective design standards. So someone doing a project like this fills out the form, the checklist, and checks okay with all the boxes and submits it to the city. Does, there's a staff member that, from the city that looks at this response and looks at the plans and says, yes, these are correct? I mean, is there some kind of review process that, um, that yeah, uh, checks and validates the things are checked off properly and understood properly?
6: Yeah, so when, when the project comes in, the, the, the planner is going to review this uh, project. We have uh, for completeness, we have a, a checklist of all the information that was required for each application. And so now with, with these types of projects um, included in that completeness check, we go through you know, each item that the, the, the project is, is eligible for and or is required to uh, adhere to um, and, and verify it. And then make when we take it to the planning board, they're making the, the decision on whether or not it meets those standards, and so that's in the staff report. How you know specifically how the project meets those standards, and I think um, what came up at the last planning board is, is more of a um, you know a process in the staff report, a more um, I guess complete way of providing that information to the planning board so that they don't have to ask specific questions. Like I see that you know you say this building has thirty five percent. Glazing on its elevation. Can you tell me, you know, what those numbers are? Mm -hmm. And so, um, it's that's more so of a a staff uh, er, requirement task to do to have ready for the staff report.
3: Okay, and so, um, are there public notices? As part of this review process?
6: Yes, it's it's a, it's still a design review. You know, it's still it still requires design review, and that still requires a, a public notice. Um, and so, uh, even if it's staff level review, uh, it would there would be a 10 day public notice uh, before decision. And then, um, obviously, for for when a project goes to the planning board, uh, there's our, our standard public notice procedures, and you know, add in the paper mailers and it's on site.
3: Okay, and and so I'm I'm assuming that there's also an appeal. Option. Yeah. Yes, there is. If appeal. someone feels mm-hmm. like this is somehow not appropriate, they can appeal it to the Council or to the Planning Board.
6: Yeah, 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 to whoever, you know, if it's staff's decision, they can appeal to the Planning Board. Um, but there, what the, plan, you know, if it's appealed to the Planning Board or appeal to the City Council, what those, eight, you know, bodies will be looking at is, you know, doesn't meet the standards. Um, oh. and so if somebody, you know, has. Files an appeal and they you know they don't like the character of it um, you know those decision making bodies won't be able to really consider that
3: okay um interesting um and so what happens to you know I know the city has the the, the guideline to residential design and all these other uh, really helpful documents for designers um what happens with those
6: um well f- at this time, most, um, a lot of single-family additions um, and smaller projects are discretionary review, and so those are still applied. Um, you know, in, in in working with developers, we, we obviously point to that. Um, it's not so much that we can tell them it's required, but you know, um, we do work with developers on on going through the the standards or okay. the guidelines. I'm sorry.
3: Yeah, I think it would be a shame to not be using those documents yeah. because they are so clear and, um, you know, well thought through.
1: Yeah, I think that the biggest difference is for those projects that are um, de-ministerial review by the state, right? So some of these affordable housing projects that right. qualify for that.
3: Right? Well, that's a whole other category in itself, I think, really. That's another discussion. Um, And, okay, yeah, I think those are my questions.
0: Any other questions? I have a question. Um, What about houses that are sort of a hybrid of styles where, you know, it's not quite, I don't know, colonial revival versus, I'm just kind of making stuff up, but there are certain houses that kind of like fall in between categories, how would you advise um, those projects? Like, could they sort of take from the standards of both categories, or?
6: Um, well,
0: I think have more leeway.
6: And our and going kind of going back to our discretionary uh, guidelines that that we have. One thing we we look at is if. There have been changes over the years that change the style. That the new addition or new, uh, you know, yeah, new addition to a a single family home should continue those new style, you know, that new style that the the building has uh, undertaken. And so um, I guess we, you know, we would look at those elements in the guide to the residential design to see, you know, which is the dominant style. Is it, you know, is it still the colonial revival or has it been? you know, upgraded so much or or altered so much that it's now completely a different style and then we would Mm -hmm. go with that style.
0: And then my next question was about the, um, like, digging of the basement. Um, And and you showed the map with the red and is that um, just where it's conceived that the water levels will rise within Alameda? kind of like high probability or?
6: Yeah, yeah. So if there's, you know, at 36 inches of sea level rise, those areas, uh, there'll be, you know, groundwater will be coming up to the surface.
0: Got it. Yeah. Okay.
1: Where it's red, huh? The color red.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, I think we have completed the questions from the board. Are there any on public comments?
6: Yeah, we have one speaker uh, signed up currently. Christopher Buckley.
0: All right.
2: Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. Is the time clock good? Okay. And I have five minutes. Wonderful. Um, I sent you a letter with some voluminous attachments, uh, which is similar to material I sent you uh, earlier. It came out last night. Uh, Hopefully you had time to look at that, but the earlier submittal might have also been helpful. Um, I'll try to go over some of the points in the letter and also in the attachments. Um, First, though, a question I've got, and this is for staff and maybe board members would want to ask this, is the process in this review going forward. So it's going to the planning board on Monday. It will be a workshop. Um, Then what happens? Presumably there will be input from this board and the planning board. Uh, Would staff then come by with proposed text changes and maybe some illustrations? might there be further discussion, a lot will depend upon the input received tonight and Monday, maybe there's some issues that need to be fleshed out or questions asked. But um, I would recommend that the board pose that question to staff. I'm posing it too, so staff may want to respond in any case. Um, An idea that had been discussed was a joint meeting between the planning board and this board at some point. that might be considered that might also address the concerns that Tom Saxby had expressed earlier in, at this meeting. Um, you know, going through our letter, um, Section A on the first page, a general comment we had was one to point out that given the you know, concerns I've expressed about the standards being they need to be simple, they need to be easy to understand, not too complicated, there's concerns they shouldn't be too prescriptive or too limiting. Keep in mind that applicants always have the option to go through the discretionary process if they don't want their projects to stick to the standards. So that, and if anything, these standards should be perhaps more rigid because things could fall through the cracks, more rigid than the existing discretionary process. Um, Going on to the next page, and this refers to the diagrams and materials I sent out, um, one of our big concerns is the traditional design area, which we think is a very good approach It's left out a very important area of the city, which is the North Park Street area, one of the most important historic areas, some of the oldest buildings in Alameda there. We're recommending that the traditional design area be expanded to include that. Uh, We brought this up repeatedly. Planning board last time, I think there were three votes out of the seven or three members. I don't think they took a vote. Um, And staff, staff said, well, we'll bring that back later. Well, this is the time to consider it. Uh, so we ask that the board you recommend approval of that I sent you a map showing the traditional design area There's a crosshatch that shows the, the North Park Street area that's been left out and there's also an illustration a photograph of some of the uh, very nice uh, Buildings including Victorians there within that area um, and Then um, the second item in uh, under multifamily standards is to consider defining the context area for Park Street, Webster Street and the stations, commercial areas as the entire um, district. The uh, context area approach for residential, uh, five closest lots on each side, lots within 250 feet. That might not work well in the commercial areas. And there's uh, some discussion or letter about that. Uh, Going on to windows, which is one of the uh, items in the staff report. Um, You know, staff had expressed uh, concerns, apparently concerns from applicants, the public that maybe the standards are too rigid um, that they need to be relaxed in some ways. Uh, You know, keep in mind the guide to residential design, the existing design review procedure, the key thing is this diagram showing window diagrams. And we're recommending some relaxations to those tweaks to make them more flexible. Uh, But it's very important that windows, at least on street facing elevations, should visually match the windows that are historically appropriate to the building. There's been some discussion to allow extruded vinyl, uh, perhaps even on front elevations, maybe limit those to side elevations if you've got to do it. But also keep in mind there's some windows that are relatively affordable, fiberglass in particular, brands like Marvin Integrity, that do meet the visual match criteria. And so those options need to be further explored. Uh, We've been in discussions with staff on this we hope to continue those I believe staff is going to be continuing its investigations after these meetings we're also doing our own research and to try to come up with some other um, options and um, kind of running low on time here uh, on page four adversely altered buildings under the one and two unit standards, those need to be addressed. What do you do? Our recommendation is, is that if you're making changes to them, don't make the alterations. Any words, try to prepare the way for ultimate restoration of the buildings. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Any other uh, public comments or?
1: Uh, No, not online.
0: All right, so this is the time that the board members may comment, I believe. Yep. Is there?
1: And um, we, we did uh, create a slide if you guys want to see. It's um, uh, comments that were received from the June second, twenty 2022 meeting. So y- you can take a look at that and see if you want to still propose those comments as well. Um, we can bring that up.
0: I guess we'll take a little time to review these comments from June 2nd. my board members are digesting this. I'm going to ask staff how we should go about um, organizing our thoughts here. We definitely want to get to all of the, you know, uh, questions you had for us and make recommendations as per the slides that um, Mr. Sablon proposed. Um, And also, um, Mr. Buckley made um, very good Uh, comments and questions, and um, we'd love to comment on those as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe again, while my board members are kind of reading this summary real quick, we can start with answering the first question Mr. Buckley had. So after this um, process, you know, our comments will go to the planning board. Uh, What happens
1: after? Right. Uh, So I would say that it it, um, depends on direction from the planning board. but. There has been talks of possibly uh, a joint meeting with the HAB, Um, so um, we'll be looking to get direction from them on that um, on Monday. Okay. But yeah, um, uh, today is a study session, and then Monday is going to be a study session, and then we'll get direction after that on what's the next steps.
6: Okay. And then we would bring bring back some of you know staff suggested edits based on those comments to, to both boards um, and, and, you know, we're logistically looking at how to have a uh, joint meeting uh, since there's uh, limited space now with, with the dividers and everything. And so that's really the, the issue there and so we'll, we're working with the city clerk's office on that.
0: Fair. Okay. <laughs> Maybe
3: we well, can pull ta- uh, chairs in around <laughs> out here and do a, a round circle.
0: Um, so, I propose, well, uh, it'd be nice if the summary uh, kind of stayed up, um, unless there's like other images um, that we can pull up while we're talking about certain comments.
6: Well, yeah, we can just share the screen and I can pull things over, like I've, I have some maps if you want to you know, talk about that and everything, so.
0: Okay. Um, okay, so maybe we start with some comments uh, from the board members you want to just run
3: through the whole comments yeah, or, yeah. or do you want to take it item by item?
0: I personally would, I'm okay with both. I personally would like item by item, but what would you guys prefer?
3: It's fine.
0: Yeah. You're the boss. I, okay. So, okay, so let's start with um, from the presentation. Um, the first item was the ground floor option. And actually, uh, could we pull up that slide? Of um, the presentation where we talked about the ground floor options. Um, I'm just such a visual person. I, yeah. Thoughts? I'll yes.
3: Speak on this. Um, I agree that, that the trellis and the, the dying vines is not a good look. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think we need to take away that option. Maybe we can because it is one of the options, right? It's, there's two other options that the developers or the designers can use to comply with that criteria to create interest on the ground floor. So I don't understand why we necessarily take it away. This is, a, this is an example of something that's not successful, and I think the staff agrees with that. Um, but maybe you could expand the idea of having greenery to include planters or things that are easier to maintain um, that will soften the building somewhat. In this case, you know, it's a very hard-looking facade. But if there was some greenery in front of it that was healthy, um, it might help mitigate some of that issue. So maybe instead of saying it has to be a trellis or it has to be growing up onto the building, what about expanding it to include planters or other landscaping features that could uh, possibly be more successful? That's my thought.
4: I think that sounds good too, having landscape features as an option.
0: Uh, Agreed. I don't really have anything other to comment except I've seen a successful trellis with a beautiful uh, wall of greenery. So I agree with that. Yeah, that's
3: why I think that not necessarily taking it away. As an option but maybe expanding it to more possibilities like this is a south looks like a south facing facade it gets hard hard sunlight it's a metal trellis against a reflective building what plant wants to live there um, so you know maybe if you if you put it in a planter and sort of can create more of a little ecosystem for itself it might do well um, I, on my house i have a <clears throat> a wonga wonga vine growing up onto a trellis from the ground. It gets zero water. It gets almost no sun. And it's healthy as could be. I mean, it just loves it. So it's just, it's like it's figuring out what works and, and using that instead of, you know, forcing the, the design issue.
0: All right, I think we can move on to the next item. Um, so the exterior entrances to the upper floors,
3: Um you want yeah. me to speak first? Uh, <laughs> I'm yes. Just, I'm go just for it. Jumping right in. I, I think that the the stairways in the middle of the building are, are kind of tragic design features. Um, they're dark, <clears throat> uninviting. Um, I would be a little scared to go into those, possibly, um, depending on where it was located. Um, so I really think that the standard needs to a, a address that. Um, either by enclosing the stairways or, um, I don't know. It, it just seems like the, the two examples you provided here don't work for me at all. Um, so how, how could I comment back to you in a way that would be helpful, um, other than saying that I don't like what, what's offered here?
1: Um, I guess um, would you recommend it be a wall with a door or um, could there be like, a, is it more like a screening and maybe a, a gate or something like that?
2: So, I
3: think anything, I mean, does, an entry to me is somehow identified, it's easy to, to identify, a person who doesn't know the building walks by and sees an architectural feature, a little portico roof or something and they say, oh, that's the entry, maybe it's a pergola, maybe, you know, all sorts of different options, but um, they know that's the entry. In this case, Um, It's not that clear to me. And then it's so uninviting by being dark and involving, you know, narrow passageways between the stair and the wall. Um, So I think it would be more successful if this, if the one on, the option on the top was a closed-in wall and there was a door and there was some kind of an entry roof or something uh, Denoting that this was the building entry, right? Yeah. Um, and the lower option, the lower building, uh, it's it's a little harder to, to see that. It's not as dramatic as, a, as this upper image, uh, because of the angle of the view and the bright sunlight. Um, but again, I think it's it's not it's not clearly an entry. It's it's just it's kind of a minimal effort at at you no. Know, here's the circulation path. But it's not really saying, this is where you should go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there needs to be more uh, distinction of, of the building entry uh, and tying it into the rest of the building. Right.
1: OK, thank you.
0: Any other comments? No. Um, I So I'm also kind of taking a step back here. I mean, what is the purpose? Why is this design so prevalent? Like, I see this, and it's very recognizable to me. And, you know, one factor is maybe cost, I don't know. Uh, but I see here, I'm thinking like, you know, these separate units, and then, you know, the unit on the first floor requires a door, and then whoever's living on the second story needs to go up the stairs and go goes into their door. Um, I think something that uh, board member Saxby commented on is the first photo is a little bit more dramatic than the second, but this breezeway, I think, is what you called it. Um, You know, it it is dark, but if you enclosed it, then you would need some kind of lighting. Um, I think the idea of a breezeway would have the most light. I mean, isn't it dependent on which way the um, the building is facing, and all those other variables. I mean, you know, to be transparent, I agree with Tom. I don't think. I mean, board member uh, Saxby. I don't. Uh, I, I don't particularly like this look. I don't know what it is about it, uh, but I think whoever kind of designed this thought of like a more, like, an open feel before you go into your unit. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Those are just kind of my thoughts.
1: And then a lot of times these stairs will connect to maybe exterior outdoor walkways that connect the units on the back side. So, um,
0: so like, let's say, so could it possibly, it's not like going into a unit, but it's like going into some hallway that ends up being,
1: like like an exterior access to multiple units. Interesting. The level, right?
6: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would, would point out that uh, we prohibit multi uh, motel style balconies um, uh, located on the street frontage. And so um, for for something like this, you know, I, we, you can make a recommendation that this type of entrances should not be on the street facing. Um, and then you know, the planning board and, and the staff and or if you, if you can kind of. Craft an actual uh, description of this—an objective description that, that accurately, you know, says that like motel-style motel balconies are, are prohibited. So these types of breezeway entries or, or uh, open hallways uh, should not be on the on the street-facing elevation.
0: Oh, so that's not a standard currently.
6: It's not, not just that you know yes. motel-style motel balconies can't be on the street-facing, but so
0: I see yeah
6: so so similar to that you, we can make another you know standard that says that these types of uh entryways should not be a, uh are not permitted on the street facing
1: or the, or like how Tom was suggesting like it should be behind a door or should have a door right to go up there
3: yeah it's a tricky one I think that the the image on the bottom it looks like they've design the roof to allow a little more sunlight penetration into that breezeway mm-hmm. and that makes a huge difference um, so it's it's hard to it's hard for me to say in a blanket way that you know the breezeway is wrong um, but what I see in these images is the you know the narrowness the darkness the um, the lack of clarity I think as far as the entry goes uh, because it, it, you're just you're going to the darkest place in the building to enter it. It seems, it seems odd to me. Um,
0: if it's enclosed though, would lighting help Well, yeah, once it's, once it's an
3: interior space, then, you know, lighting can be designed. But in an outdoor space like this, usually they just have lights for nighttime use.
0: Yeah, I, I personally don't, I mean, I, I'm leaning, right? But I don't have a very strong opinion on this one. Uh, do we have to, I mean, those those are just kind of our opinions, you know? Um, do we have to kind of come to a consensus on this, or can we move on to the next yeah,
4: no, yeah, you could just item? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I don't have any opinions, so... Yeah you it would be good to move yeah, you on. Can,
1: you can just uh, provide the comments, and then you can okay. move on to
4: the next well, one. So
0: I guess we're on to the next, um, right. This is the North Housing Project example. And it's a discussion of, you know, the entrances in this specific situation that could apply to other, um, other projects.
4: Thoughts? My initial thought was that the same issue probably exists for preschools and other situations where you have to have like a controlled community. Are there potentially like situations where you could say this standard exists except for specific situations?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think you can, right? If, if it's like a senior housing. Um, Development, right? Then maybe make an exception for that or something. So, yeah, that's possible.
3: Well, I think a school probably would be another situation where you need security and sort of control of access.
1: Right, right. I guess if it was like a um, um, mixed-use building with the with the school also in there, right? Yeah.
0: Do we? Uh, is there a risk that we might forget some kind of category and come to some kind of you know, difficulty there? Or do you feel that, you know, we've had enough experience where we can just properly, you know, make sure that all types of this, proj- these kinds of projects and communities would have these exceptions?
1: Hmm. Um.
0: Like I, is there a wording that we could use that's like general enough to you know, like it could have like maybe and other organizations such as this that need, you know what I mean? Yeah.
6: Um, I mean, we, we can, you know, staff can look into, you know, uh, existing definitions of, 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 of groups like, you know, sensitive receptors is, is a definition in, in the state code for, for elderly and, and children mm-hmm. when located near, you know. Uh, hazardous materials. And so, you know, looking into something like that um, to, to kind of qualify, you know, when that exception can take place is,
0: is allowed. Okay. Any other?
3: Yeah, I'd like a comment. I, I do think there's a lot of merit to having an entry defined from the, the, the major, the primary roads around it. But in this case, you know, with the parking lot, the way it's designed and it looks like maybe there's a, a, a drop off area right there at the, at the entry pathway. I don't know if it's a bus, if there's a bus route that goes through here or not, but it seems like if, if, that, if that secondary or that entry next to the parking lot was, was developed a little bit more, it would, it would actually read as an entry. Right now it looks like a path and it has some landscaping around it. Um, but again, if it was, if it was more embellished as, a, as an entry through design, then it might seem more natural. Um, instead of being the back of the, the building, it would just be the place where people go. Um, so, you know, it, for me it would be ideal if there was a, a clear, you know, pedestrian pathway entering from the primary road and having this this secondary entry for the parking lot be sort of the residence entry, um, but I think that this concept for me can work. It just it just needs to be further developed, um, acknowledging that the that the, the the rear entry is the primary entry um, in this case.
1: Like having a a, a more uh, prominent yeah. entry. A landscaping entry into the site us let's or
3: something, let's, right? let's see something there that kind of says, oh well, there's the entry. I can in a block away you can say, I know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just having it be maybe a little sign and a pathway, you know, four foot wide pathway going to an entry point. Right.
1: like when you enter into like some public parks, right? You, there's there's mm-hmm. it's like yeah. a grand.
3: Or or something even as subtle as like the Gene Sweeney um, little. Sort of concrete wall there that has the name on it. I mean, it's it's defined enough that you can see what's going on, and it's prominent right on the corner. So in this case, it has to be maybe a little more prominent because it's it's around back. Um, but I, I I really do think this idea can work. It just has to has to be uh, embellished. And I, I think for elder care too, it's it's really important that they have controls on access.
0: Okay, the next uh, item here is the equivalent facade treatment. Yeah, I mean, I, I love giving options and uh, I think that if you hold to these standards, it limits some of the options that could be, you know, make this a potential building, Uh, I guess, what I'm trying to say is there's um, some missed opportunity here. But anyway, I'll give it to the board members if you guys have any comments about this.
4: No comments?
3: Um, I I think the staff um, was recommending that that the theme, architectural theme be expanded to include all four sides of the building. Is that what I was understanding? Uh, was-
6: yeah, to, to, to kind of change the, or expand the, the definition of theme so that it's not just color and materials. It has to wrap around on, on non-street facing elevations, but some other like articulation yeah. um, or, or things like that um, or uh, conversely uh, require that Uh, all four, like you're saying, all four sides have the same type of uh, treatment as the street-facing sides. Yeah,
3: No, I I agree with that. I think that's a better approach.
0: Okay. I think I agree. So, next. Hmm. Equipment screening. Any thoughts?
4: I thought the staff um was the staff recommendation to have unless it's if it's not street facing it doesn't have to be covered was that what staff was saying uh yeah that's okay yeah, yeah. Essentially, yeah. i thought that sounded like a a good resolution
3: would you repeat that you oh
4: um during the presentation they talked about um if if it's not on a street facing side they don't have to cover it there yeah. doesn't have to be screening for the equipment okay
3: you want to say something, Lynn? No. Okay. Well, one one issue. I mean, these these heat pump uh, pieces of equipment are are going to we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of them because they're so good, they're amazing, um, and they need space. They don't work in tight. If you put a screen in front of that heat pump, it's not going to work as well. And so. Um, I think that we probably should not have them on primary facades, just in general. Um, and on secondary facades, allowing them to be exposed is is fine. I, I've, in my designs, I'm kind of putting them under things, like under decks and things like that to hide them. Because they're not, they make a lot of noise. They make a, not a lot of noise, but they make some noise, and they're not very attractive. Um, so. Um, I think should, there should be a preference for secondary facades, and, and removing the requirement for screening, I think, is important for that particular piece of equipment. And I have less problem with the the charging stations, just because, you know, they're you know, it, again, I wouldn't put them on the primary facade. I would say secondary facade. Um, but you know, they're they're no more. They don't look anything worse worse than a, a hose reel or something like that. It's, it's It's pretty minimal impact. The the heat pumps are a little more impact.
0: the um, the assumption that um, the EV chargers and the electric heat pumps will be on. We're talking about any of them. If they were installed on the primary facade, that they should be covered or screened. But if they're to the side, then it's moot.
6: Yeah, that's essentially it, yeah.
0: I mean, I'm okay with that because I I don't foresee so many people trying to even put these in their primary facade anyway. And, you know, a lot of these um, chargers make more sense on the secondary facade where a normal driveway would be. So, um, I'm okay with that.
3: One, one yeah. additional comment I might make is that with the heat pumps, th- maybe the maybe the planning, the staff looks at the planning code and allows, different setbacks for this type of equipment in the side yard. Because a lot of houses have a four or five foot setback and that that means you can't put a piece of equipment like a heat pump there Um, because you have a minimum five foot setback for the heat pump. So if you reduce that to three feet. um, And I know this is not part of the the discussion we're having but I I think that 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 particular PLANNING PROVISION NEEDS TO BE RELAXED IN ORDER TO ENCOURAGE PEOPLE TO USE HEAT heat PUMPS.
6: WE CAN ALSO PASS THAT ALONG TO THE PLANNING BOARD. WE could ALSO PASS THAT ALONG TO THE PLANNING BOARD. OKAY. OKAY. Uh,
0: MASSING OF THE SECOND STORY. Any thoughts? I, yeah. Well, I was just, I think I just needed a little bit more clarification. Um, so it makes sense that you would want the second story of a bungalow to be set back, uh, especially because I think one of the images that came up of a traditional bungalow was initially a just a one story if it was like a bungalow cottage, I guess. And so to maintain that look, but the residents of the house want more space. You know, that's like what everyone wants. You do the second story addition. Um, so, what what is the problem? The setback applies only to bungalows. So, in
6: this, this example. Uh, the actual, the, the upper floor is actually larger than the, the bottom floor, and there, it's kind you know, it's cantilevered over, and, it, you know, the, ma- the proportions between the bottom floor and the upper floor are kind of flipped.
0: So pe- so the standards right now allow people to have this kind of design? Yeah. Because all their, all their, um, the those only standard is the setback from, like, the street view?
6: Yeah, as far as, yeah, um, yeah as far oh. as actually written. You know, I see.
0: Okay. Any comments?
3: Well, my initial reaction to this is um, that I think, you know, bungalows are sort of particular, you know, low single-story style that the setback is really important to, especially in the bungalow neighborhoods where you've got all these one-story buildings. And if you start making them two-story buildings, it changes the character of the neighborhood pretty dramatically. So I think that's a really important, Thing the distinction there, um, whereas some architectural styles, two stories is pretty natural. Um, so really, maybe it's it's more of the issue of the the massing of the second story being larger than the massing of the first stories, not so much the setback. And maybe the setback's a way to achieve that, but um, you know. May, this particular design might work better if, if the massing was reduced and, and maybe, um, uh, uh, you know, that the second story didn't comprise the entire width of the ground floor, that um, there is some articulation of the second story. Um, you know, this is not, to me, this is not too far from working, what, what's being presented here. It's just it's just a little bit awkward in its, in a, because the massing of the second story is bigger than the first. Um, and then the the second story gets kind of, it overhangs the door, the front door, but there's no element vertically below that corner that makes it feel like it's sitting on anything. So that's just an architectural comment that it feels a little uncomfortable for me the way it's designed. Um, but but I, I'm less, I don't think that the second-story setback necessarily needs to apply to all building styles. Um, it's more uh, more of the massing issue, to me.
6: So it'd be like adding a new standard for, for second-floor additions or you know two-story homes where the, the upper floor is uh, you know x x amount of feet or percentage of the width of the lower floor and, uh, and length as well.
3: I don't know. You guys are clever with that stuff, but. But um,
6: that's the kind of the general, uh, <laughs> you know, feeling of, of that comment.
3: I'd have to think it through more, because I don't, I don't mind the, the second story overhanging the first story a little bit, but the fact that the, the, whole, the, the, the whole mass of it um, uh, doesn't seem appropriately scaled with the, the ground floor.
1: Um, so I don't know how to word that. And then I, I think another thing we were wondering about is, like, for cantilevered type portions of the building, should there be like um, a limitation on how far that it can expand across an elevation?
3: Well, like an old um, port cochere kind of structure, mm. you know, sometimes went all the way across the driveway and sat on columns. Mm. Um, can be very nice. So if you but it, I, I think I'm going back to, I'm going to start saying something that Chris Buckley was saying earlier, is that um, there's always discretionary review. So we can define the standards such that they're strict and um, don't allow for uh, this type of building. And then if somebody wants to do something that actually is a nice design, they go through a discretionary review process. And you know, not necessarily rely on the objective review standards.
0: that's a tough one because I think that you know most projects of this nature is you know can be very overwhelming you know to uh, a homeowner or whoever's undergoing a project like this and so people are kind of sometimes adverse to the risk of you know not being able to do something um, because and I'm just I'm just putting that out there I'm just It'd be nice to, I don't know, just have resources to allow for creativity, or just know that the the you know discretionary review is not a scary thing. Um, and I agree with Board Member Saxby's comments. You know, it it's easy to kind of make up these Yeah, I I think this picture is, uh, for me, uh, not very pleasing. Like, it just feels like the house is about to topple over. But I looked at a few houses that kind of broke some rules here and there or um, had design that I never thought of. And it does work, and it's, you know, um, so I I wouldn't want to put so many restrictions, but. Sorry, I feel like I'm not really helping you guys on this one. Um, yeah.
6: Well, I think I think maybe the comment to the planning board is that, um, as a standard, y- yeah, there should be some type of limitation on the massing of the second floor. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's you know a set you know percentage of the width and length, or is it floor area? Um, you know, percentage of the floor area or, or something like that. There n- should be some type of standard. Um, and then, you know, really also that there's a discretionary review for the possibility for something that's outside of that.
0: Yeah, I I think that would be, I would be behind that.
3: And, and maybe it's, um, maybe also it's a context issue. There's certain, like the bungalow neighborhoods are really clearly one-story neighborhoods. Um, and if there are additions that are made, they need to be set back. But, um, you know, some of the earlier neighborhoods, you know, are primarily two-story neighborhoods. And so maybe the additions, the second story works well in those situations. So maybe they're somehow tying it together with the context, Um, but maybe not letting the second story exceed the, the area of the first floor.
0: But this more general massing idea, because we already have sort of these setback rules of the second story edition as you can perceive it from the street view. So when you're talking about massing, then you're really talking about parts of the house that aren't really privy to the public necessarily, and just more enjoyed by the inhabitants of the house. So at the end of the day, would that really, I don't know, be as important? Because we're seeing like the house, like the backyard of it, right? And I see it, I'm like, "Mm." maybe the side neighbor though would feel a little, uh, I don't know, like that it's a little intrusive with the second story edition kind of jutting out there. So I could see the neighbor sort of maybe not appreciating this design. Um, just food for thought. But I, I, at the end of the day, I think I would be behind more clarification or guidance for massing, for the general public, and definitely you know highlighting that uh, discretionary review is definitely possible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next, this is the Golden Mean standard for raising house.
6: And I also believe uh, Christopher Buckley's uh, letter had some, uh, s- some recommendations as far as uh, workarounds for, for the situation.
3: Yeah, I think that he sent those out oh, yeah. to us.
6: Um, so there's, there's, I believe one of them was uh, raising the grade uh, around the, the house itself. And then also the, the other one was um, uh, the water table lowering it so that it's you know, not exactly at the, the, the floor, jo- uh, you know, ceiling plate for the lower floor. But it, it meets, the, you know, the, the location of the water table
1: is, uh, you
6: know, compliant with the golden mean.
1: Could raise it
3: or write adjustments, right? Yeah. This is this is a tricky one, but you know, it's I've seen so many homes <clears throat> that have been raised up that completely change the character of the of the house and completely change the relationship of the house to the sidewalk and the street. And it starts to I mean, just elevates it and. Removes it from sort of the community. It's like this. It's way out of out of reach. And these huge staircases in front, leading down to the street that leave no yard space. And I'm I'm kind of a feeling that we should. This kind of thing should just be discretionary review. If it, if I don't know if that's even an option, but it's 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 not a very good thing to set rules for, especially when you've got rules based on groundwater, which only apply to you know, very small little slivers of community around Alameda and you're saying everybody else has to meet a different standard or if you're going to make the standard generally available, then you're threatening, you know, a negative impact to uh, a very wide area of, uh, of Alameda. So I'm kind of against it in that that there may be good solutions, like raising the ground level around it, maybe ways to break up the staircase so that it doesn't look so massive. There may be ways to change the articulation of the architectural ornament to kind of fool the eye. But these are all things that are really difficult for objective design review standards, and they really need somebody, a trained person, to look at it and to pass judgment on it, in my humble opinion.
0: Um. Yeah, I. I'm just curious. Well, so a couple of thoughts. Um, when a project comes your way, like there are certain I wouldn't even call them neighborhoods, but streets that are just known to flood within Alameda, and you know that that map with all the red spots. You know, I was just like looking at, oh, is that that street that I know that floods so well or whatnot? So, do they have? Different requirements when like is is that something that's flagged right now
6: not currently um, just because this, this is kind of precipitated on, on sea level rise so it's an it's anticipation mm-hmm. um, but you know just on their own people you know we you know'll we'll talk to somebody they want to raise their house but it's impossible for them to raise it and meet the golden mean and so we talked to them about excavating and you know sometimes we hear back that that's not that's not something they want they don't want to have to have a a sump pump in the in the lower floor and and all that um and so then you know it's working around for a different way of expanding the house
0: is it a cost issue because i was wondering about like some pumps and other ways to mitigate you know floods or water
6: yeah i mean it's it's an ongoing cost and maintenance issue
0: i see yeah
1: and then I don't know if you notice. Maybe there might be some homes during when we were having those storms, mm-hmm. and there's just constantly pumping something
0: mm-hmm. out, out of into their, the their basement
1: areas. Yeah. So sometimes um, when they get these basements, you know, they're running those sump pumps a lot, depending on, on what kind of weather we're having. Right. So, yeah.
0: Is that something mm-hmm. negative because there's like more stress on the infrastructure of like public streets or? what's is
1: that uh, yeah that is that is an issue you know
6: there was definitely uh, you know neighborhoods with with you know over overtaxed uh, storm drains and you know flooding
0: and how would like homeowners sort of um i don't know do their part like is it to encourage like more sump pumps or more draining within their lot or I don't know. I mean, well,
6: yeah, well the, the issue here is uh, is permitting, you know, or requiring excavation in areas where we know that there will be uh, emerging ground groundwater. Um, so it's more so uh, allowing them to, you know, we're looking at ways to allow them to raise that house without having them to go into the to the groundwater. Um, oh, I
0: see. Yeah. Got it. And pe- sorry, and people often want to raise their house because they want another floor, or they want yeah. like a more workable basement.
1: Right, they're looking to uh, expand their living space. Yeah. Okay.
6: And so uh, another option allowed uh, currently by by all the standards is to actually just raise the house all the way up and create a, a full ground floor uh, below. But you know that that is one option that that people have, as opposed to just raising uh the lower floor a little bit too to
0: why not just create a second story then is it a cost thing or a design thing or
3: well in a lot of cases i think they would be too tall for the current standards if they've got a raised basement a first story yeah. and then if you add a story on top of that you're probably going to go over 30 feet
0: got it oh that's tricky hmm.
3: I mean, one, one. It, it probably wouldn't help enough, but you know, you could look at the building code, you know, allow, requires habitable spaces to be seven foot six inches in height. And, you know, I think that Alameda allows existing buildings to have less than that um, if it's an existing condition. But um, you could, for for basement spaces, You know you maybe could lower the standard to seven feet which is it's not great but um it's i don't think it's a hazard either um and that would give somebody a little more room above ground for you know instead of having to raise their house so much
6: so i think uh the, what I'm hearing to, to, hear, to report back to the planning board is that you don't really support um, having to, you know, these types of exclusion or uh, excluding uh, houses within these areas from the golden main requirement, um, and rather you know, to have them work out a, a different way.
3: Yeah, I think that's my, my opinion. I think I'd rather see them do discretionary design review and, and you know, have to prove their concept instead of just going through a checklist.
0: I agree with that.
3: And that way I think it's also more equitable as far as the, the community at large that you're treating, you're applying this rule to basically everyone instead of just these little areas where they might get some flooding.
6: So I think that's that was the, the last actual issue that uh, staff had brought up. And so if you know you want to you know, respond to Christopher Buckley's uh, <coughs> uh, comments or you have your own, you know, we can bring those now.
0: Okay, well, I'll just quickly start. Um, I had a wonderful chance to. Uh, hear from Christopher Buckley um, over a phone call, and that was really illuminating. And I really do appreciate the APS's um, just attention to detail. And uh, I just really hope that uh, staff would um, just really look into their edits and the comments. I mean, even just, uh, I think, I don't know which version it was. But, um, you know, when I look at a document, And everything is very organized, and the and not to say it wasn't organized to begin with, but just like uh, I forgot, it was like uh, one figure where it was um, showing all the diagrams of different types of roofs or styles, and then you know the written description, and one of them, one diagram was missing from the the term. It was like a like flat front face parapet or something you know some kind of false front. false front and then there was like no diagram attached to that and I would just be you know on that document like where where is this so their attention to detail um, and their edits I thought was were very very um, helpful and um, you could tell how much time they put into all of this so I just wanted to um, comment on that um, during uh, mr. Buckley's um, uh, presentation or uh, just his his thoughts um, shared today uh, I just want to make a comment about the um, the TDA um, and that area I think there are enough um, you know standout uh, architecturally relevant um, buildings to include that um, that part of the North Park Street area. That's just my opinion. Um, You know, I think there have been some highlighted uh, that I know very well and that people can, you know, uh, visualize on that part of Park Street. Um, You know, I think it's like the Starland, like, music school and it used to be a salon. Uh, There's just, there's a like a restaurant there uh, that looks uh, like it's been there forever. I mean, uh, oh, there's like um, another, like, was it like Preacher's Daughter? I think it's a fairly, well, it's new for me because I don't really get out very much, but there's just really a vibrant business area there that uses the historic buildings, not to mention um, some of the homes that, You know, you see as you're walking down Eagle, just like right next to Park. And um, I think uh, those were, um, those houses, you know, as they uh, kind of stand next to each other, really uh, have a presence there in this area. So I personally feel that um, that area should be part of the traditional design area included. And I also want to mention, you know, um, like Park Street, I think Webster Street has had, you know, big plans to, uh, you know, make it, I mean, no offense, but I think Park Street is a little bit more iconic because of the movie theater. But I think Webster Street definitely has um, some wonderful businesses. You have the um, farmer's market there. I think they have big plans to really identify Itself as being um, having the history of the Neptune Beach area, so it has a little bit more of the maritime flavor. So I just would love to um, kind of promote that. I think there are just wonderful things that happen to any businesses that um, you know want to give those streets a chance. You know, I I, I mean after COVID and other. Uh, economic factors, you know, it's it's sad when you see businesses, you know, kind of shut its doors. And, you know, the longer that a business in these beautiful buildings, these potential beautiful buildings are not, you know, vital, then you see like graffiti or like, you know, boarded up windows. And that's not what we want for our city. Um, so I just hope that we can, uh, and, and I think one way to do it is to really continue to make these streets iconic, and you know I, I just feel like I learned so much from these architects or these people who have so much passion for, you know, the the aesthetics of a particular street. And there's something about the continuity of Park Street. Not not to say that every business has to be the same. Where we, you know, there's plenty of room for creativity and. Uh, different types of businesses, but there's a unifying feature that I think excite people to come visit that area. And I think one of the ways is us, you know, preserving the beautiful architectural features that are already there and continuing, if it needs to have a new build or whatnot, that like the massing and the transom windows and the things that... You know, I think I sometimes you take for granted because it's just kind of been there. But we, I think the preservation side, we need to upkeep that to kind of unify these businesses as a whole for a community. Um, and I hope that Webster, and I, I I, know that Webster Street is trying to develop the same kind of vocabulary. And, you know, you got that Krolls on the, um, that corner with like so much history, I think there's like ghost stories about it and of course like unfortunately like the whole Neptune Beach area that was so vivacious back then it's like you no know, like the amusement park features are not there anymore but that history translates to all of Webster and I hope that those kinds of features stay and can kind of be it preserved but like reimagined for like new businesses so um, I'm sort of Yeah, waxing eloquent here, but um, that's just kind of the thoughts I had about that. Any other thoughts?
4: (laughs) I also want to disclose that I um, had a phone conversation with Christopher Buckley about these topics.
0: And just also just love to, I mean, I, I kind of talked about the experience of a resident, but obviously, you know, we're talking about these objective standards here. Would love to hear, uh, you know, more technical thoughts and ideas to help this document be something useful for future developers and other other people wanting to do projects here in Alameda.
6: Yeah. So, I, okay. yeah. From what I'm hearing is that including North Park Street and Webster is, is, is kind of important the board and so yeah, I, I would, that's that's the recommendation is you know a strong recommendation that these areas be included into the uh, the you know traditional design areas
3: yes I mean I, I was going to say that I support that concept as well um, so um, but in addition um, uh, mr. Buckley brought up the idea of <clears throat> expanding the the you know using a different con context approach for the historic districts, um, not just the, the sort of specific 250 feet this way or that way and the buildings, that kind of thing, but actually using the entire district as the um, context. And I think that's, that's important. I, I agree with that completely. Um, now, that said, because, you know, the district is defined by the buildings in the district, all the contributors, and so I think we need to use those as the context. But, you know, for any given property, I do think that it's, it's like there's a, it there has to relate more, it has to relate to the entire district, but it has to relate more to the adjacent buildings um, where it's located. Obviously, you know, height, you know, window placement, uh, materials, those things kind of, t- the, the, the immediately adjacent buildings kind of take priority, but it has to fit into the context of the overall district. Um, so that's kind of my agreeing with Chris or Mr. Buckley and um, sort of expanding on it a little bit to say that there, you know, if you're putting, if you, I don't think we're going to have this, but an infill building in the Park Street district would have to fit into the context of the entire district, but address immediately the adjacent buildings as far as how it fits in. Um, I, I agree with uh, mr. Buckley's idea about the street facade facing windows having a higher uh, priority as far as matching the historic window type and that maybe those standards could be relaxed on the secondary facades. Um, so I, I wouldn't have a, take an issue with that um, and then in he also brought up the, uh, the issue of adversely altered buildings and you know, we don't want to use those as context buildings for um, our standards. So somehow we have to make sure that that doesn't get uh, it sort of become established. Uh, and, you know, we have new buildings following these adversely altered buildings and all of a sudden you, know, you lose all your historic context. Um, so I, I, I do think that we, that when a building has been severely altered that it really, we, we're looking, if we can know what its historic building type was and what it possibly looked like, then we should be using that as our reference standard not what's, not, not the altered building itself. And if we don't know, if it's too far gone, then, then I think the neighborhood context becomes important. Um, Uh, neighborhood context is always important, but you know, you know, I think I think you know what I'm saying. Um, And I think that was, I think that was it.
0: Just to add to that, you know, um, I think there are certain buildings that are designated as like N or S, like they're um, historically significant, Um, and so Uh, those buildings should be highlighted, because we have already kind of done the research and know that these are significant and has stood the test of time and good models to get inspiration from.
4: I was going to ask why that area nor- of North Park Street was excluded from the traditional design area initially?
6: Um, so when uh, when it was originally brought, so um, the city's citywide devi- design review manual was actually originally uh, created specifically for the North Park Street, and then it was expanded to be citywide. And so there's um, form-based uh, zoning code for the North Park Street, which is pretty prescriptive as far as building types and, and styles. And so I think that the thinking was that you know the, these issues were, were kind of baked into the zoning ordinance, but um, you know if there's what it doesn't doesn't have is is reference to the block in the neighborhood, the, the form-based zoning code, and so you know by adding that, that's the those are the the items that would you know then be enforced on these projects. We would then be looking at the neighborhood as opposed to just the the, the forms and the zoning.
4: I see. Okay. Thank you.
0: Also, I wanted to add, you know, Park Street and Webster Street get a lot of attention, you know, um, but uh, I find the stations that run along, like, and they're really uh, quite charming and also very, uh, could be described as, uh, I'm at a loss for words, like, vivacious. Uh, There's energy there within these little pockets. Um, So I guess I would recommend some kind of, uh, I don't know, um, I guess encouragement to any businesses in those neighborhoods to uh, um, just continue to foster that, that character that already exists within those pockets of stations. I don't know, I mean, I guess this is what we're trying to do, to encourage like the character and like maintain, preserve that history. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess, right. I guess it would go back to treating it uh, as a district in a way and using the whole context of those those commercial areas, right? Yeah. Considering development.
6: So, so with that comment, I think what the standards would need is uh, kind of a new criteria for uh, project or you know, projects that are located in these stations and uh, we can easily identify them uh, specifically by the, the zoning code of the properties, you know, basically all the C1 zones along Lincoln and Ensenal are, are the stations and so I think um, what the what the recommendation would be is that if a project is located in there as opposed to using the, the five, 250 feet, you know, standard that, that we have for, for other places, that it be specifically properties within those stations. Yeah. So we, we basically define the station and say if you're gonna be in there that then, then this is the method that you use.
0: Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> um, I could I think oh, we yeah.
3: all, we're also talking about Park Street and Webster yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Street. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, I could see some stations may not be as robust or you know, it might not be as Uh, the character of it might not be as uh, identifiable, maybe. So if they're having trouble drawing from, you know, that particular station, then I guess the recommendation could be that you can draw from other stations, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know.
3: (laughs) You might be messing with.
0: Too much. Okay. Uh, Is there any other comments? Well, I sincerely hope we helped with our comments, um, both to staff and Mr. Buckley with uh, the uh, Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. And uh, you know, there's there's nothing to uh, approve here, right? This is just. Do we need a summary?
6: I was about to ask, did you want me to kind of go through what I have and what what I'm prepared to provide to the planning board? Yes, please. Okay. Um, So on the the issue of of the the ground floor, um, the recommendation is that we look at supplementing, uh, you know, the the terraces with some type of landscaping planner, uh, as require some type of landscaping planner to supplement the terraces, um, and so make that recommendation to the planning board um as an option as an option yes yes one of, if you well if you're going to use the terrace then you also have the planter as, as an, an option. option yeah yes, yes okay um, and then building orientation um, look at the, uh, some type of objective standard that encloses the stairways and avoids uh, these breezeways uh, that, that we looked at um, as far as primary uh, building entries. Um, one look at, you know, def- an objective definition of, you know, uh, of the type of communities where we would allow uh, for the main entry to be not be on the street facing. And in those cases require some type of, you know, pedestrian oriented uh, entryway, whether it be landscaping or, or something that um, is on the main street. Um, and then facade treatment is pretty, just, you know, recommend that uh, all four sides be treated the same um, as far as the, the uh, character. Um, support um, not requiring screening on ground floor equipment when it's not on um, the street facing or main uh, elevations, and also uh, pass along to the planning board that uh, may be looking at uh, Adjusting the zoning ordinance for, for equipment setbacks. Um, you supported uh, some, you know, so devising some type of uh, objective standard to, to control massing for second floors. Um, and then, you know, also noting that there is discretionary review if, if you want to avoid that.
2: Um,
3: I, I would just point out that at least in my view, that didn't necessarily require setbacks for all building types, that it was more of a massing issue than it was a setback. Yeah, but in right. the case of the bungalows, then that seemed to me more of a, you should do this kind of standard.
6: Keep the Keep the setbacks for the bungalows and yeah. then look at not just, not necessarily a setback uh, requirements or, or changing those, but some type of massing. Uh, and there And
3: there may, there may be other types of one-story, you know, sort of characteristic one-story buildings that we want to. Also group into that. I'm not thinking of one right now, but you know, that's my point: is that in areas where they're mostly one-story buildings, that the second-story additions can be really detrimental. Yeah. yeah.
6: Um, let's see. So y- you did not um, support any type of uh, uh, ex- you know, uh, exclusion for the Golden Mean, um, and and instead, yeah. you know. Uh, there are you feel that there are other options available to uh, to people who want to add to those types of houses,
1: right? Like discretionary review, right?
3: Yeah, that's that's where I was headed with it.
0: Yeah. Right,
1: but just the ob-
0: the objective standards aren't reflected in like setbacks of the second story addition that it's a massing issue, right?
3: Well, I think they they or, like, moved on to the next.
0: Oh, my gosh, I'm sorry, I thought you were still, where are we? We're talking about the golden mean. Oh, right, 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 okay, got it. Yes, we didn't have any, yeah, yeah. okay.
6: Um, you you <laughs> strongly recommend including North Park Street and uh, Webster Street into the tr- uh, uh, traditional design area. Um, and then as far as uh, the, the stations along uh, Encinel and Lincoln, um, s- creating some type of uh, a, a separate, looking at neighboring buildings as opposed to or sorry um, so in, instead of looking at um, you know the, the standard of five uh, lots and 250 feet instead look at the entire uh, station itself the station district and so that's those are the comments that I have.
1: Um, we also have the
3: windows um, regarding the, the keeping of the primary facade windows in oh, the historic character, character or matching it as close as possible and possibly relaxing the standards for secondary facades was one of the ideas.
0: Do you find that like resident or does anyone working on these projects have a lot of questions about, Matching the historical look of the windows to begin with, like uh, well, of the primary facade.
6: As far as uh, uh, applying the objective standards, we haven't had any projects in a traditional design area, but um, just in regular day-to-day window replacements and everything that you know, that's that's an, an issue that comes up. But you know, there 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 are good products out there to work around. Yeah.
0: Just hard to order in a timely.
3: And then I think the final item that we were, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. You? oh yeah, yeah, go
3: ahead. <clears throat> the final item was regarding the um, adversely altered buildings not being used as a context um. or somehow, you know, determining what the historic style was as, as being our preferred way to use it as a context building.
6: Yeah, so essentially like disqualifying it if it's yeah, it's too far gone. altered and <laughs> we don't have any information on what the original style was. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And then so if it's unknown then you should use the neighborhood um, as the context.
3: Yeah, I I mean I like the the context standards that the that the city has written for the objective design review standards, but it, it didn't apply to the the one and two unit residences. That was a whole different way of looking at it context-wise. And so I I like the idea of, you know, context being so important as far as how things work in, in a setting. Um, I wouldn't object to making the context uh, for the one and, two store, one and two unit buildings similar to the objective designer use standards for multifamily buildings.
1: Would that be for um, the ones that are um, buildings that are on the front or street facing? Um, side of the properties for one and two two-family buildings, you're thinking.
6: Yeah. So um, with us, the the projects that we we're we're going to be seeing um, for for one and two-family are, are going to be under the SB nine uh, state law, which you know in our our one zones basically um, allows new new homes in the rear, um, and so. Uh, That's one. That's primarily the reason why uh, originally we didn't uh, keep the it didn't have the traditional design area in the the one and two unit um, uh, design or objective design standards, Um, and so, you know, including that traditional design area, um, staff would say or make a suggestion that that applies to when the house is going to be street facing, whether you know it's a, a vacant lot or a lot where the the existing house is pushed far back, and so the new house is going to be in the front, or it's going to be on the side, side. or if you want, you can recommend that at every project.
1: I'm right. not we're, sure I followed all that, but we're, we're, we were anticipating that in the TDA for one and two family homes, most of the construction would be infill backyard type of development, right? right? And so then,
3: a few cases there'll be buildings built in front, I would think, because there are buildings that are set back pretty far on the property.
1: Right, right. And so we're thinking, like, if we do apply um, those TDA contexts, would it um, maybe it makes more sense to apply just to those those types of buildings that are located at the front of the property or or on a street side facing property, right? Instead of like all of the all of the infill, including the backyard homes, right?
3: Um, but doesn't the doesn't the multifamily design review standards kind of address that in a more complex way Today. in a broader you know neighborhoods way instead of just the individual property
1: I guess we we could make it more clear um, if if that's the you know the direction that we wanted to go
3: I don't yeah. It's it's getting late.
6: Well, yeah, I think yeah. The the recommendation is that you want the traditional design area uh, applied to the one and two family.
3: I would think so. Yeah. Okay.
6: So that's that's what we'll pass along to the planning board. That that's you know that's your recommendation.
3: I mean, there's a lot of good there's a lot of good ideas in that document.
0: Okay. So. Uh, I, I'm okay with that summary. Do you guys, uh, the board member, have any other comments? Or I was going to add yeah. um,
1: that there was a comment about um, having staff uh, take a look at the text corrections that AAPS had for the objective standards. So mm-hmm. um, we could add that to it. Yes,
3: mm-hmm. absolutely. The letter that AAPS submitted
0: So do I mean, from here is there any motion? Do I have to no right? We're okay. So I think we can go to our next item, which is board communications.
3: No communications.
0: Okay. Uh, the next item is staff communications.
1: Um, yeah, we just had um, one item. It was that the. Um, City council will be using um, the council chambers during the, um, the day that we're supposed to have a meeting on in May. So the first meeting in May. So if we do have a, a meeting in May, we'll have to probably poll the board for like a special meeting on, a, on another week. So just to let you guys know about that. Okay. Uh,
0: so another chance for oral communications.
6: We have one speaker.
2: Okay just observing the uh the question of how many people can be accommodated as board members of the dais if there's a joint meeting um the uh, city we had a little discussion with the city clerk before this meeting and they're working on it and i'd make an observation that there's currently nine seats at the dais itself plus two of the lower level seats so at this time basically just for staff and you know whatever you know officials are sitting at the dais if theoretically there was a joint meeting of the planning board and HAB that's a total of 12 seven on the planning board and five on the HAB so you're basically three seats short um, if you're just looking at the dais if you count these two other seats and maybe staff could well staff needs to be where the equipment is i don't i think that's going to be a you know critical but there's basically three seats you'd have to find and um, Without being a designer of this sort of thing, it seems to me that's not insurmountable. Possibly, an arrangement could be made. I know you maybe have back benches or something like that, as well as there was discussion of having seating in the front too. So, wanted to make that observation. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
3: Yeah, along those lines, you know, I would I would be comfortable sitting in front without the barriers between me and the person next to me. And if I had to be masked, I could be. um, So that would open up that option, I think, in a more easy manner.
0: Okay. Uh, let's see. Are there any other staff communications? Or is that?
1: Oh, oh, yep, that's all.
0: All right. Uh, Oh, sorry, we're at oral communications. And that was made. Any other oral communications in public? No, no other speakers. Okay. And so we can adjourn our meeting if there's... Okay. So uh, anyone m- want to make a motion to adjourn this meeting? I
4: don't think I'll we need to. make a motion to adjourn the meeting. Second.
0: Okay. That is our meeting. Thank you, everyone.
4: <laughs> Thank you.
3: You didn't take a vote.